1 Corinthians chapter 4. This then is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Paulus for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign so that I might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honored. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags and brutally treated and are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have any fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love. He is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere and in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will be able to find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Uh, Back in July, the KFC um, and Shrub Street Kids groups went on a weekend away. And uh, on the Saturday night, we all played a wide game. 
and it was, it was lots of fun, lots of running around, very tiring, especially for us leaders. Um, but the aim of the game was to collect as, many, as much money, which were little chips, as they could um, in their teams by buying and selling commodities uh, in different countries. So there were different countries dotted around the field, and they had to buy some wood from one country and sell it to the country who would buy it for the most, uh, and so on. Uh, but there was one extra rule, um, and that was that there were four pirates. They happened to be me, Stuart, um, Ben, and Ian. Uh, and we were roaming the seas, looking for ships to attack and steal from. Uh, and as pirates, if we um, caught a ship, we had to play rock, paper, scissors. And if we won, we could steal. If we lost, we, were, we failed at defeating that ship. Well, we could still try and make a trade. Um, so we could try and take some of their commodities and exchange some gold coins. But what the teams weren't told was that gold, those gold coins were completely worthless. They were worthless. But unfortunately, there was at least one team who thought it was easier to trade with the pirates all game rather than run around to the other countries. It generally involved less running. But the problem was they were seeking for something that was totally worthless, and they never realized, and subsequently they lost the game. As we've already seen uh, in our series in 1 Corinthians, as Oliver has just reminded us, um, there's been a problem in the church at Corinth. Uh, over divi- there's been division, not over doctrine as such, but more over their leaders. Who were they following? Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, others followed Cephas. And Paul has mentioned time and again that he came in weakness. And maybe that was some of their objections to him. They didn't like the fact that he was weak. But the problem is worse than you might first realize because in our passage today, it is leading to pride. And there's this sin of pride in the church in Corinth. You know, the Corinthian believers, they were seeking the glory of man based on who they were following. And and the thrust of what Paul is saying in this passage is this. Follow the example of the apostles and seek the glory that comes from God rather than that of man. Last week, James uh, encouraged us to think about the rewards we receive for a faithful life. And we need to come into chapter 4 with that same mindset. We as Christians are, are to seek to please God and not men. The glory that comes from man, like the gold coins in the wide game, is totally worthless. You see, sometimes we know in our heads that seeking approval from the world is futile and actually seeking approval from God is the thing that is lasting but when it comes to a Wednesday afternoon and you're at work and maybe you're asked to fiddle some figures to um, paint something in a more favorable light it's less easy isn't it or maybe it's when you're at school and your friends are laughing at something that you know you shouldn't be laughing at it's so easy to join in isn't it Or maybe it's even in church. And you love to just tell people just how much you're involved in. Or how well you pray in public. We love to be people pleasers, don't we? We love uh, people to love us. But all these things are seeking honor from men rather than from God. So how does Paul address this issue in this chapter? Well, he uses uh, the example of the apostles to give three areas to seek the glory from God. Three areas to seek the glory from God. 
And the first is this, uh, verses 1 to 7. I've called it the pride of comparison. And the lesson is, we mustn't take pride in the church leaders that we follow. The pride of comparison, verses 1 to 7. Here's Paul's logic in, these, in this first section. Verses 1 to 4, Paul uh, tells the Corinthians that he doesn't worry about the judgment of men. He doesn't worry about it. But verse 5, instead, he trusts God to judge rightly. He doesn't worry about the judgment of men, but instead he trusts God to judge rightly. And because of all of this, he says to the Corinthians, therefore, do not judge leaders beyond God's word, verses 6 and 7. There's the logic. Paul doesn't worry about the judgment of men. Instead, he trusts God to judge rightly and therefore says, do not judge leaders beyond God's word. Let's unpack each stages of that logic. So firstly, Paul doesn't worry about the judgment of men. Paul starts off this uh, chapter by reminding the Corinthians that he and the other apostles and Apollos are, verse 1, servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. He starts off by saying that their position is in relation to Christ and not in relation to the church. They are his servants. And from that, they should be judged by him. He does not give their role as their church leader, although maybe he is. If he did, then he'd be defining him and themselves by the church. And, so, and in so doing, would, he would naturally be judged in, by the state of that church. Instead, what he is saying right from the off is that they are just servants of Christ. They are just servants of Christ. They are not the main event, and actually they need not be noticed. And as servants of Christ, no judgment matters other than the judgment of your master. I don't know if you've ever watched Downton Abbey. Um, if you have, you'll, you'll know at various times different servants come under scrutiny for their actions, some rightly, some wrongly. And the other servants may look on in disgust, uh, but the judgment that they are truly fearful of, or maybe waiting in anticipation for vindication, is that of Lord Grantham, the master of the house. Because it's his judgment, it's his judgment is what matters. If he decides that they are in the right, then they keep their job. If he decides that they are in the wrong, they lose their job. It's Lord Grantham's judgment that matters. And this is Paul's argument here. Paul's argument is that they are servants of Christ. It is only Christ's judgment that truly matters. But he does go on to say that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Uh, verse 2. Those who are leaders in churches must be proven faithful to God. Leaders of the churches should be faithful men. Not necessarily those who are talented or have a winsome character, but those who are faithful. It is likely that the Corinthians are making their judgments about Paul based on his abilities, maybe his weakness and his apparent foolishness. But Paul says that he isn't the slightest, in the slightest bit bothered by the judgment of men. He says, verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. 
He isn't bothered by the judgment of, from the church, by them, or even by the world, any other human court. Or even, he's, he's not even bothered by his own judgment on himself. He's not saying that he's perfect. He just says that in verse 4. Neither is it because he is arrogant and feels invincible. But he doesn't, he's not bothered by their judgment because he has a clear conscience. Verse 4, before God. He has a clear conscience. He says that. My conscience is clear. Friends, that's very countercultural in this in our day and age, isn't it? Paul doesn't feel the need to be true to himself because he knows he is a sinner. He is not judging himself according to how he feels, but according to God's word. Paul doesn't worry about the judgment of men. But second stage of the logic, instead, he trusts God to judge rightly. He trusts God to judge rightly. Paul isn't worried about the judgment of men, but there is one judgment that he does care about. The judgment from the Lord. Verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. He knows that the judgment of men may not, before the uh, the Lord comes, may not be sound because they are not in full um, knowledge of the facts. But the Lord, uh, verse 5, will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Paul can trust God to judge rightly because he knows that God is the one who sees everything. He sees all. He is the only one who can make that perfect judgment on each of us because he not only sees our actions, but he knows the motives of our hearts as well. Paul is bothered about God's judgment. And as as James reminded us so helpfully last week, God will reward us according to our deeds. Paul can have confidence that every person, end of verse 5, will receive their just praise from God. Uh, and what a motivation to live for the glory of, from God rather than man. We will receive, uh, every person will receive their just praise from God. You see, God's people should <clears throat> look forward to the day of Christ because they will be vindicated and rewarded. However, if you're not right with God, then that day is a day to be fearful of because it will also be a day of condemnation. God's judgment is what ultimately matters. And therefore, third stage of the logic, do not judge beyond, uh, judge leaders beyond God's word. Paul then concludes his argument um, by saying that if he does not need to be worried about the judgment of others, then why do the Corinthians make such a big thing of choosing Paul over Apollos? Or Cephas over Paul? Why, when Paul, an apostle, does not worry about the judgment of men, do they love to judge and choose between men? He gives the example of him and himself and Apollos. Why? Well, the whole point of the first section is summed up at the end of verse 6. Then you will not be puffed up in being the follower of one of us over against the other. Paul is saying that choosing their respective leaders will lead to pride. And it has led to pride in the church. How often do we see this in church today? Um, when I was a student, um, a number of us from the CU went to Word Alive one year. And 
uh, in that week, we had a little competition, uh, and it was to see who would, uh, who knew the most people at the conference. And um, if you know me, you know I'm quite competitive. And being a competitive guy and being semi-confident that I could win, I threw myself into the competition wholeheartedly. In fact, I even suggested a new rule that um, if you got the signature of someone who'd been on the main stage or even better, one of the preachers, they would count as double. Why did I make that rule? Well, because I knew one of them, of course. And I wanted everyone to just to see just who I knew. It was pride. It was me being proud, saying, look who I know. That's a bit of a silly example, but it does happen, doesn't it? How often do you hear people say, oh, well, I go to such and such church, and this famous preacher is the pastor there? Or, or maybe it's you. Maybe you say, you know, I go to Emmanuel Church, Leamington Spa. And, you know, in, this, in a modest-sized town, we've got a membership of over 200. A- and I serve on the refreshments team. It's, it's being, I'm, I'm making it a, a joke, but it's, it's being puffed up in being a member of one church over and against the, another. It's pride, and we need to repent of it. But to guard against it, Paul encourages the Corinthians to not go beyond what is written, verse, verse 6. Some take that phrase um, to mean that, that what Paul has just written. Um, but it seems to fit better to mean rather that the Corinthians... Uh, believers shouldn't judge a leader, a church leader, beyond what is laid out in the scriptures. You know, accountability is right and good uh, amongst church leaders as well as amongst church members. But choosing to follow leaders based on anything other than faithfulness is wrong. That's Paul's point. Christian leaders should not be judged by their gifts or charisma or even the size of their congregation but on their faithfulness. Do we judge leaders on their faithfulness or or how much we like their preaching, their preaching style? It's a challenge, isn't it? And Paul then finally drives home the point uh, that there is never any cause for pride in the Christian life in verse 7. He asks them three rhetorical questions. First, who makes them different from anyone else? He said, you're being puffed up But who makes you different to anyone else? Well, it's not any of them. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, nothing. There is nothing that they have that isn't gifted from God. Nothing earned. All a good gift from the Lord. And then thirdly, so why do you boast as though you did earn it? He's showing that pride is ridiculous. We have nothing to be proud of. And Friends, don't take pride in anything, but don't take pride in the church leaders that we follow. So there's the first area, um, pride in church leaders. And the second area, uh, verses 8 to 13, I've called it the pattern of Christian living. And, and the lesson is we need not seek worldly influence, but we should be happy to count the costs of a God-honoring life. You know, Paul drives home the extent of their arrogance even further. Uh, He starts to use sarcasm with the Corinthians to emphasize the lunacy of their thinking. Verse um, 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. 
The Corinthians think that they, have already ha- they already have everything. They have all they want. They are even rich. And yet Paul is saying that that is arrogance. They are suggesting that they have no need of God. They have it all already. And that is how they are living. According to them, they don't need God's continued help in their lives. And they take it even further. They have even begun to reign. Perhaps the height of their arrogance. You know, the Christian hope is that one day we will reign with Christ when he makes all things new. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We will reign with Christ if we're believers. But the Corinthians were living like that was now. Maybe they were saying that they were already pure and holy because that is how, we, how it will be when we do reign. Maybe that's what they were saying. And you know, Paul even wished it were true. He says, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. He wished it were true, but it's not they haven't begun to reign. It's arrogance and pride. And having started to show them the folly of their thinking, Paul begins to spell out what true Christian living really is like. Is it how the Corinthians might want it to be? Having everything, being rich, uh, spiritually and materially, and reigning. Well, Paul's example of the apostles couldn't be further from that, could it? Look at verse uh, 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. The apostles, unlike those reigning, feel like they are being paraded as the spoils of war, all for the sake of Christ. There couldn't be a greater comparison, could there? The Corinthians thought they were reigning. The apostles are the spoils of war, condemned to die. Paul does not just liken them to prisoners of war, but even further, those who weren't even worthy to be slaves, those condemned to die in the arena. They were treated like the lowest of the low. They had become a spectacle to all the world, even the angels. Nothing like what the Corinthians thought the Christian life was like. And the comparison continues in verse 10, and the sarcasm continues Paul says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. The apostles are seen as fools, all for the sake of Christ. And yet the Corinthians want to be seen as wise. Paul has already addressed the fact that the message of the cross is foolishness. But that isn't how the Corinthians want it to be. They want to be known as wise. Not only that, but they, were known, they wanted to be known as strong And yet the apostles were those who are weak. They wanted to be honoured, but the apostles are those who are dishonoured. You know, at this point, Paul could easily have repeated the words he used in chapter 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the dishonoured things, And the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, the honoured things, so that no one may boast before him. God uses and wants the foolish, the weak, and the dishonoured. 
Why? Well, so that no one can boast. No one can be proud. The pride of the Corinthians is, well, it's foolish, isn't it? And the, the apostles are not only thought of as nothing, but they are treated terribly too. They suffer utter shame and suffering, all for the sake of Christ. They couldn't go much lower. Verse 12, they are the scum, sorry, verse 13, they are the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. He couldn't be much stronger in his language, could he? And yet, verse 12, through it all, they keep pure. They keep seeking to please God. When driven to despair, what do they do? They work hard. They bless. They endure. They answer kindly. They do not give any reason for their persecutors to accuse. They do not rise to the provocation. They continue to live wholeheartedly for the Lord amidst the toughest of circumstances. Through God's grace, they are following the commands of Christ. In Luke 6, 28, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. They're following that. Through God's grace, they are following the principle laid out in Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. But they're not just following the commands of Christ, but they're following the example set by Christ, aren't they? Christ suffered everything imaginable and more, and yet he was always without sin. Christ went through it all, but through it all remained sinless, all for our sake, so that he could win us for himself. They're following the example of their saviour. And did you notice um, when this persecution ends? It says uh, in verse 11, to this very hour. And then in verse 13, right up to this moment, there has been no end to the persecution to the apostles. And there is not necessarily ever going to be an end to the hardship endured for Christ, this side of glory. The apostles never saw an end of it, uh, the end of it on earth. They were never expecting a day that they would be rewarded on earth. So why did they continue? Because they were seeking the reward from God. They knew that at that time, each will receive their praise from God. They never got it on earth, but they'll get it in heaven. They'll get their reward for enduring. Friends, I don't know about you, but I've been challenged by that this week. You know, am I willing to give up everything even my home, for the sake of Christ? Am I willing to be brutally treated, dishonoured, cursed, persecuted, slandered, all for the sake of Christ? Am I willing to become the scum of the earth in the world's eyes, all for the sake of Christ? Am I willing to continue to live a God-honouring life, even if the easy way out would be to sin? all for the sake of Christ. You know, we could lose family, we could lose friends, some of us may lose jobs, but are we willing to be faithful servants of Christ? And friends, if you're not yet a Christian, but are thinking about these matters, 
then know that this is the cost of following Christ. Those who follow Christ are called to give up everything. Jesus said this in Luke 14, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. They're Jesus' words. That's the cost of following Christ. And it may sound like I'm trying to discourage you from trusting in Christ, but I'm not. Because you count the cost, but you look to the reward. Christ offers forgiveness from sin and a home in heaven. And friends, that far outweighs anything we are called to give up. Be happy to count the cost of a God-honoring life. And in the third area Paul comes to, verses 14 to 21, I've called it the power of a consistent life. And the lesson is our actions should be consistent with our words. Our actions should be consistent with our words. Up to this point, Paul is not held back with his dealing with the Corinthians' pride. Um, There can be no misunderstanding of what he has been saying. But he is concerned that they will not see the motive for the way he has written. So he assures them that he is warning them as his dear children. He loves them dearly, and that is why he does not hold back. Sometimes it's hard to hear, um, be pointed, shown our sin, but if it comes from a loving heart, then it is good. And, you know, just like it is sometimes appropriate and an effective way of teaching our children to show them the folly of their ways, that is what Paul has done here. As a loving father, he has demonstrated to them their folly. And in fact, Paul reminds them that he is their spiritual father. He is the one who first brought the gospel to them, and through him they believed. If you look at verse uh, 15, I became your father through the gospel. And from that point, he has that father-like authority. And as their father, he pleads with them to imitate him. As any good father demonstrates how they want their children to live, Paul has demonstrated the proper way to follow Christ. He wants them to do likewise. He wants them to live their lives on this earth, giving up everything for the sake of Christ. And Paul rounds up his arguments with another set of uh, contrast. This time it's Paul and Timothy against the arrogant people in, in the church. Paul wants the Corinthians to imitate him. So what does he do? Well, he sends Timothy. Timothy, his son whom he loves, just like the Corinthians are his dear children. But Timothy, did you notice, is, as Oliver pointed out, faithful in the Lord. A young and timid man, a man that many of the Corinthians wouldn't think of as someone impressive or wouldn't think of as someone to aspire to be, and yet a man who gets a commendation from the Apostle Paul as a faithful man. What is it about Timothy that was faithful? Well, he was one who did imitate Paul. Paul says that Timothy will remind you of his way of life in Christ Jesus, maybe by word, but probably also by action. Timothy's life would remind the Corinthians, of Paul, 
as he lived out what it means to be a Christian. In other places in the Bible, we see a little of what Timothy was like. Timothy was also sent by Paul to the Philippians. And this is Paul's appraisal of him to them. Philippians 2, verses 20 and 22. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Again, that's Paul highlighting that um, he, saying these things out of love, he sends to the Corinthians the most caring person he knows, Timothy. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy is a faithful servant of Christ, looking out for others' others' interests over his own, and concerned with the furtherance of the gospel. So Timothy is faithful, but look also at what Paul says about himself. He encourages them to compare Paul's way of life with what he teaches everywhere in every church. And there is no difference between the two. They are in perfect harmony. Words and actions are consistent. You know, it's said many times that actions speak louder than words. Uh, And in many ways, that's true. And in fact, Paul makes that point soon. But in the Christian life, there needs to be both, doesn't there? it It is the word of God that convicts men and women and shows them their need of Christ. And it's the preaching of that word that is God's chosen method to extend his kingdom. Words matter, but so does a life consistent with those words. A life consistent with what we preach. A life consistent with the word of God that we say that we follow. How damaging it is to our witness when we talk of following Christ of living for him, and yet our lives show a life of immorality or pride or gossip or whatever it might be. How often do we see the sad stories of men who have had to step back from the ministry because they have stopped following Paul's example and begun to live like the Corinthians? Friends, are we that same person on that Wednesday at work when we are encouraged to fiddle the figures? Or when we're with our friends at school laughing at things we shouldn't do? To the person we are on a Sunday? I say this to myself as much as I do to you. But a consistent life, Christian life, is a powerful, powerful thing. And the comparison is made with the arrogant in the church. Those who talk a great deal and make great arguments, but don't believe Paul will come to discipline. Looking at verses 18 through to 21. These are probably the false teachers who undermine Paul's authority. Their lives are full of pride. There is no worry about any consequences for the way they are dealing with church matters because in their minds, Paul will never come to discipline. Paul says that there is no power. Whether this means there is no outpouring of the Holy Spirit on their words or whether it is relating to their lives which are so inconsistent with the word of God that they profess to believe. Well, that's a debate for another time. But the main thing is that they have not been proven faithful like Paul has and like Timothy has. Paul looked particularly to his way of life to prove his faithfulness. And as we saw from the passage in Philippians, Paul points to the fruit of Timothy's work to show his proven worth. These false teachers have no such proof of faithfulness. Their lives are inconsistent and they are damaging 
to the church. And a, a consistent Christian life, there is power in a consistent Christian life. As we come to a close, let me ask you this question. Whose glory are you seeking? The glory from God or the glory from man? The Corinthians were seeking man's glory, whether that was through choosing the strongest leader or through making sure that they are honoured by the world around them or by talking a great talk but not walking that same walk. The apostles and Timothy, however, chose to seek the glory from God however costly it was to themselves. Which will you seek? Glory from God or the glory from man? And if you've been convicted of the sin of pride and worldliness tonight, then Paul's final thing to say is a plea to repent. Look at verse 21. He finishes with a choice to the Corinthians, doesn't he? What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? No repentance for the Corinthians would lead to a rod of discipline. But repentance would lead to love with a gentle spirit. Whose glory are you seeking? Let's um, close by singing. Um, We're going to sing, Take My Life and Let It Be. It's a prayer, really, um, to live a life, pray to God to help us to live a life that is whole holy for him, uh, a life that the apostles lived. So as the music starts, let's stand and let's sing, Take My Life and Let It Be. Mm -hmm.